Today's guest, who consulted about adoption themes for the Hulu series Little Fires Everywhere, wrote an article many years ago that goes viral just about every year. The article is called 10 Things Adoptees Want You to Know, and within it, Leslie Johnson, adoptee and therapist, hits at so many of the things we adoptive parents need to, well, know. Leslie and I explore two concepts in infant adoption. One, the newborn as a blank slate, and two, the nature versus nurture debate. Adoption, the Long View is a podcast brought to you by Adopting.com. Our focus is more on the marriage than the wedding. Once you fill the crib and are legally joined to your beloved child, your journey's not over, it's just beginning. We cover things you need to know now, perspectives you need to hear now. I'm your host, Lori Holden, author of The Open-Hearted Way to Open Adoption and longtime blogger at LavenderLose.com. I'm a mom through infant adoption to a daughter and a son, now in their late teens, and it's been a ride. Think of any road trip you've taken. There are ups and there are downs, and it's always an adventure. You're always glad for the trip, but afterward and during, you might end up thinking, if only I knew then what I know now. So here we go. With me today is Leslie Johnson, MFT. Leslie is a licensed marriage and family therapist and coach specializing in adoption and related issues. Her clients include all members of the adoption and foster care community, adoptees, adoptive parents, waiting parents, birth first parents, foster parents, and families. An adoptee herself, Leslie's personal experience enables her to connect with this community in a unique way. Leslie is a certified EMDR therapist and trained in brain spotting and the trauma resiliency model. In addition to her work in private practice, Leslie provides coaching services both in office and virtually to adoptees, adoptive parents, and birth parents worldwide. She facilitates virtual healing courses and adoption support groups and conducts adoption awareness and education workshops in schools, universities, and mental health settings. And I've had the privilege of attending several of those. Leslie also consults on film, television, and creative projects that have adoption-related themes. Leslie, welcome. Thanks, Lori. It's nice to be here. Great to have you. Can you tell us briefly your story of becoming an adoptee, the thing that happened to you? Becoming an adoptee, um, <laughs> that's, that's a great way to, to, to word that question. Um, I was born a long time ago, and my uh, birth mother, uh, Candace, she was part of the, the baby scoop era, right? So she got pregnant when she was 19. Um, she hid her pregnancy from her parents um, her fa- and her family. And when she was about eight months pregnant, she was sent away to, um, when they found out she was pregnant, they were, she was sent away to have me. She let me let me just interject Ooh. here. Baby scoop era is yes. has those elements that you're talking about, right? Um, it was in the in the 50s, 60s, 70s ish. Yes, I was born and, in 1967. Yeah, and it involved um, women in unintended pregnancies facing a lot of societal shame and secrecy, not a lot of choice, and being whisked away to to not bring further shame on the family. Correct. Is that a correct a way to? Okay. Yeah. All right. So, Go ahead. So she was sent away um, to, to finish out her pregnancy. She had me. She wanted to figure out a way to um, keep me, but both uh, her, her family, her parents, and also my biological father's family 
um, made the decision that that wasn't going to happen. So I was uh, put in foster care. Um, and when I was about three and a half months old, my adoptive parents uh, adopted me. So that's how I came to be an adoptee. And did you experience search and reunion? Um, I did. So in my 20s, I uh, contacted Department of Children and Family Services to see if I could get information uh, about my my birth parents. And California, this the state that I was born in, has closed records. They're still closed. So, um, which means uh, that when a, when records are closed or sealed, um, adoptees have no no access to their original birth certificate. So, I. I did get some general information then. Um, I was also told that there were letters that my birth mother had been sending since I had turned 16 that were in my file. But again, I couldn't um, have access to that. So I didn't, uh, I didn't search for my birth mother, but she searched for me. And uh, we have been in reunion since I was about 26 years old. And how about birth father? Um, she helped me find my birth father probably about 15 years ago. And we found that he had died um, when he was really young. So I met, have, have contacted some of his family members. Um, he was one of six siblings and, but, but I wasn't able to meet him because when I, when I, when I found that information, he, he had already died. That's one of the issues that comes up when things are closed down and um, sealed away from you for so long. Yeah. Yes. It's certainly something that happens when um, a lot of clients that I work with, you know, they're, they're so concerned about um, hurting, hurting their adoptive parents by searching, right? Even if their parents have said, we'll help you, we're, we're okay with this, there's still some um, residual guilt around searching. And so oftentimes uh, people will wait, adoptees will wait until their adoptive parents have died to begin the search. And unfortunately, what happens is, is oftentimes they'll find that uh, their biological parents have also died. Mm. So then there's like a, you know, more grief and loss. Right. Um, let's talk about that, <clears throat> excuse me, that article that you wrote on the Huffington Post many years ago. It was called The 10 Things Adoptees Want You to Know. And <clears throat> it's so funny because this tends to come up on my radar every once in a while. I went, it went viral then. But several times then as well, it, every once in a while, it'll just keep showing up in my social media streams and people are finding it for the first time and sharing and sharing and sharing. So of those 10 things, would you pick a few of those and tell us what they are? And also maybe tell us, why do you think it keeps going viral? What's so evergreen about it? Well, I think, I think it's, it's, it's kind of basic information that, that I think most adoptees would like not only their parents to know, um, their adoptive parents to know, but also society in general. Um, I think it, it, it's, it, it's, I don't know, co- kind of common sense, I, I think, among the adoptee community. Um, and I think over the last several years, uh, people are beginning to choose um, to listen to uh, adoptee voices around matters of separation and um, adoption-related issues that, you know, the 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 person who has lived that, that experience, um, you know, that's certainly one of my goals is to really elevate the adoptee voice. 
Um, but I think that that maybe one of the reasons that it 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 has was was popular and sometimes still is shared is is just that it's um, some really common uh, common themes that adoptees want people to know. Can you pick a couple of those? It's hard to pick a favorite or something when you have ten of them. Yeah, probably all are very meaningful to you. But what what has been perhaps the most helpful with your clients? Um, I think probably the idea around, um, or not idea, but the fact that 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 adoption that there's trauma involved, right? There's trauma involved in separating a child from their biology, um, and I think that there's a term that we use, adoptees use it, but I think it can be applied to all members of, of the um, adoption community. So adoptive parents, first parents and adoptees, but this idea of coming out of the fog and to come out of the fog is to recognize that separating, there's, there's grief and loss that's inherent in separating one from their biology and that this grief and loss can, can be exacerbated if you're also separating someone from their birth country, their birth language, their culture. Um, so I think that's a really important point um, that the article that the article addresses. And I think there was a um, the idea that because it was pre the the separation was pre-verbal, that it didn't get encoded as a um, as a thought into the brain. But when you in the work that I've done in hospitals, we can see that when everything about the environment changes, at that moment of placement, the gait of the mom, the sounds of the mom, the heartbeat of the mom, the sense of the mom, all the sensory input changes. Um, that is encoded as a memory, maybe not a thought, but a memory. Right, right. So if we think about, you know, like you said, baby knows in utero, baby knows the sound of mom's voice, um, the gait of her walk, the external sounds of the environment, um, you know, and when baby's born, Baby needs, baby needs familiar mom to soothe, to soothe him or her. And it, when that separation occurs, um, it's it's feels dangerous for the baby, right? So the levels of cortisol, the stress hormone, increase. And again, baby needs familiar mom to to act as that soothing agent. Um, and it and because there is no language, the language centers of the brain. Um, haven't developed. Um, there is no, there are no words to describe that event, but it is encoded in the nervous system, and we call it an implicit memory. So implicit memory. Um, that so a lot of times my clients will come in and they'll so so they'll an implicit memory is 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 there are no words to describe it. Um, there, again, it happened before lang- if if the separation happened before the language centers of the brain. So around three, um, it's encoded just sensory only. And so clients will come in and they'll say, gosh, I feel, you know, I, I just have these feelings and I can't exactly put words to them. So a lot of times I'll say that could just be information that this was, uh, this is stemming from something that happened before you had words. So in terms of therapy, that's one of the reasons why I was, uh, why I became trained in EMDR and brain spotting, because those are excellent therapies to work with implicit memory. So they, are, we're able to access a part of the brain, the subcortical region of the brain where trauma is stored um, with EMDR or brain spotting and talk therapy can't access that area. 
Fascinating. I've heard such um, remarkable stories of um, clearing and healing with brain spotting and EMDR yeah. around preverbal trauma. Yeah. yeah. So that kind of leads into this idea that we once had, probably in the baby scoop era, about the baby as a blank slate. And if we just catch them early enough um, and make this switch, they won't they won't have any after effects about it. Where do you think that idea came from? And well, let's. I'll, I have three questions about this. So, where do you think that idea came from? Well, that's a good question. I think probably that idea, um, not that it came from anywhere, but it was just before we had all of the the information and on neuroscience and and neurobiology. Um, you know, we have so much more information about the brain and the nervous system now than than we did when that was considered true, right? Bring baby home, tell as few people as possible, um, and they'll never know, you know, and we know, we know that's just not true. I mean, even working with adoptees, uh, late discovery adoptees, so adoptees that find out their adoption status later in life, they'll say, you know, I, I, I knew, I knew something was different. I knew I didn't, belong in this family. I just felt like something was different. So we, we, it's, we just know that the, the blank slate idea is, is a, is, is false. And it sounds like a case of now that we know better, we need to do better yes. with that new information on brain science and development. Yeah. So we had this idea. It was, it was misguided. It was wrong, but nobody had bad intentions of doing, of using this policy or using that notion, but what policies did the blank slate baby lead to? What policies did the blank slate baby lead to? Yeah. This baby is a blank slate. So we're going to handle adoption in these certain ways. We're going to pretend it didn't happen. We're going to pretend that our family uh, began when this baby came, came to our family rather than when this baby was born. Um, we're going to pretend this baby looks like us. We're going to pretend this baby has the same, uh, this child has the same um, genetic makeup, the same medical history, right? It really erases the identity um, in some, in some respects of the, of the child. Um, When we, when, when, when there's the the blank slate idea, we're going to put all of our hopes and dreams and wishes for what we what we wanted in a child onto this blank slate. Does that, is that kind of what exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and all that pretending for all people, um, involved in this, the, for the mother who placed the father who placed, um, and for the child and for the adoptive parents, there's a lot of pretending going on. And when you're pretending, you're not dealing with what actually is going on. Exactly. And when hard, big emotions do come up, you're not very well equipped to, um, to allow them to flow and deal with them and process them and incorporate them. And so it kind of creates what I call like trauma bubbles or so, you know, just sure. things that over time become calcified and harder and harder to deal with if you're not dealing with them as they come up. Right. Right. Yeah. And thankfully, I mean, I guess that when you ask that question, I, the reason I pause is I, I am so um, such an advocate for openness in adoption um, when it's safe for the child, and su- such an advocate of truth and transparency around adoption um, 
related issues. So when you asked me that question, I, I just was caught off guard that, that, you know, I know that it's, I know that there are still families that don't talk to their children about adoption and don't, and try to keep that information. But I guess the work that I do, um, it's very, very, very infrequent. So that's good to hear. Right. That means that we're knowing better and doing better. Right. Yeah. And I think we've answered my third question about the blank slate baby. Do we think it's accurate? And we, we now know it. it's not accurate. No. And it kind of leads into my next question, which is about nature versus nurture. That whole debate that um, goes, has been going on for, for, for years, decades. And I've been surprised on my own road of the many nature traits that show up seemingly out of nowhere in my children, like a speech mannerism or a gesture or a strong preference or an aversion that can't be explained by anything other than it's in the genes. And when I started out on this journey, I held the belief that nurture, you know, which would come from my husband and me, this would be a really big part of who my children turned out to be. And I've since found out that I was mistaken on that. And that's not to say that nurture is nothing, but it's just to say that I had dramatically underestimated nature. What do you think about the interplay between nature and nurture for an adoptee? Is there a way to measure and compare the influence of the two sets of parents? And, and should we even try to do so? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if there is a measure. Um, I think it's a combination of, of both, but I've certainly found uh, both personally and professionally, um, that, you know, when adoptees are in reunion and they meet someone that's biologically related to them, maybe looks like them, they do begin to notice like, oh, you know, gosh, that's where I got this. Or, you you know, you like that, I like that. And it, it's, it can be really validating. There, there's, it's, it's a form of, of mirroring, um, but it can be really validating and, and help an adopted person kind of again put put more of the the pieces of their puzzle together, um, and so I think I guess to answer I, I think it can be um, it's a it's a little bit of both, and I think as the as the adoptee grows up the adopted child grows up and they you know nature nurture um, you know how do they want to integrate the two you know in 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 further forming their identity. What would you say to adoptive parents who are um, working with you and they feel, they have feelings about all that nature and it makes them feel maybe diminished? What would you say about that? Well, I guess that speaks to, and, I, and I'm curious when you say diminished, um, I guess it speaks to one thing that I really encourage is, you know, adoptive parents really doing their own work, doing their own work um, before they adopt and continuing to do their own work and educating themselves around adoption related issues throughout the process um, and, and, you know, keeping themselves um, educated uh, as their child grows up. Uh, so, so that might be what I would talk about. I would, you know, I would want to explore, you know, the hows and the whys um, of their feelings around their child's biology. Bring it out into the open, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is, open adoption means so much more than just the contact. It kind yes. of means 
being willing to bring things out into the open when they when they come up. Absolutely, and I would you know your your book um, is one that I recommend all the time because I think it explains so beautifully the varying the varying degrees of openness. Because I think sometimes parents think, oh my gosh, op- open you know open adoption means um, you know there are two extremes. We send a picture a year, or you know we're having holidays together, and there's so many you know. I don't have to, I don't have to tell you, you wrote about it, but it, there's, it's, it's so helpful to, to make it known that there are so many um, places in between. And even if you don't have contact for whatever reason, right. temporarily or permanent, you can still have openness with your child. And that's exactly. really a deeper goal than having contact with birth parents. Exactly. And it's so, so, so important because kids are thinking about their biology. They're thinking about their birth parents. They're wondering if they have siblings. I mean, they, they are, they absolutely are. Yeah. You wrote a, an article once called adoptees are in reunion, whether they're searching or not. What do you mean by this? And how can that be? Well, what I mean is um, I think parents will sometimes say, you know, we told our child they were adopted and we told them if they ever have any questions, they can come to us. And um, we'll ha- be happy to ask, but but what I always say is, you know, kids aren't going to come to you. Your kids aren't going to come and ask you questions unless they're really sure that you're comfortable with the topic. Um, so you, so I encourage parents to to bring up, bring up, you know, oh my gosh, you are so good at baseball. Um, you know, Dad and I are terrible at sports. So you know, Sally, your birth mom must have been been good at baseball, or maybe your birth father, Ron, was good at baseball. So you're bringing up. Just so it's it's on it's they know that it's on your radar and and but to, to that point what I mean by adoptees are in reunion whether they're searching or not is kids especially um, are are thinking about it they're wondering if they're in the supermarket would their birth if their birth mother you know ran into them would she recognize them do they have siblings um, you know are their parents alive so I was working with a client um, once, and, and I have permission to tell this story, um, but he, he was having trouble in school. He was eight years old. He was having trouble in school, and his parents wanted, um, wanted me to work with him, and he was adopted, and so I always see parents first to get a good history, and I ask them how they talk to him about adoption, and the dad said, oh, this has nothing to do with adoption. You know, this is, he's just not paying attention in school. Which, I, you know, I kind of shook my head and and but but didn't really um, believe that. Um, so so I got a you know some more information and the next week they brought their their son in with them with them, and he sat down and I said well you know tell me tell me um, you know do you know why you're here and he said well yeah my mom said that you were adopted too so I do disclose that I was adopted. Um, and and he said you know my mom said you were adopted too and I said yes I was adopted tell me about that. Tell me about that. That's all I said. He said, well, I think about her when I wake up in the morning and I think about her sometimes when I'm getting ready for school. I don't really have time to think about her at school. I think about her when I get home and I always think about her before I go to bed. So his parents were, you know, they were so surprised. Um, I wasn't surprised, but I didn't ask him, tell me about your birth, your your birth mother. I said, just tell me about that. And, you know, he went on to talk about wondering if he had, like, like I said, wondering if he had siblings, 
um, how many. He had developed this whole fantasy of when he would meet his birth mother, um, where they would go for, you know, where they would go for ice cream. So he was in reunion, right? So we talked more about it and his parents were able to give him some information that they hadn't given him. They were able to share a picture of her and, you know, no surprise, he was, you know, able to focus better at school, right? So there was a direct relationship because um, I'm, I'm guessing he was, you know, thinking about this at school too. That mind chatter based on that yeah. forbidden thing that wasn't accessible to him. Right, yeah. right. I've heard a name for that technique that you mentioned to some, sometimes uh, try to bring up adoption in a very non-threatening way. I've heard it called dropping pebbles. Oh, that's nice. I think uh, a woman named Holly Golden came up with that. Um, and so adoptive parents just once in a while say something like you were saying like, oh, I wonder if your birth mom is good at this or yeah. I wonder if your first dad has this trait too, or, oh, look, we're driving by the hospital where you were born. Right. And um, sometimes, uh, you know, th- that just gives them a chance to pick up the rope yep. and engage with you in a non-threatening way if they want to. And just because they, if they don't, it doesn't mean you stop doing it. You, right. You keep doing it once in a while. Right. Right. And, and kids eventually will say, they'll either, they'll either say nothing or they'll engage or they'll say, you know, stop talking about that, you know? So, but, it, yeah. but, but whatever the response or non-response isn't a cue to stop bringing it up. And what can parents do to feel safe to the child, um, to feel safer. I mean, everybody wants to feel safe to their child, but what are some of the things that we adoptive parents sometimes do that can shut our kids down when they may want to open up about something? Well, that's a great question. And, um, I think part of it is, is again, um, doing their own work so that they are, and this is hard, um, maybe that they don't get their feelings hurt, right? So every adoptive parent is going to hear, you're not my real mom. You're not my real dad. Every, everyone. I, I can't think of one parent that I've worked with who, um, and even parents that I haven't, I mean, my own, you know, my, my, my own mother heard that. So I've heard it. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, you know, to, to not, you know, your feelings are going to get hurt or you're going to be upset, but go, um, you know, go work that out with a therapist or talk to your partner or talk to a friend. Don't let your child, um, don't let that, don't let your reaction show to your child, right? So that's one way. Um, being open when they ask questions, right? Being open about, uh, again, setting the stage where where you let your kids know that they can talk with you about anything, adoption related and anything. Um there are different ways of working with uh, behavior. So I know timeouts are, are kind of a kind of one way parents um, discipline kids, you know, sending them to the room or you're taking a timeout. I always encourage adoptive parents to, um, and I probably would encourage any parent, but especially adoptive parents to do a time in, right? So this is a, a child that's experienced, um, you know, separation loss, maybe multiple separations. If they were in foster care or different placements, you don't want to send them away. You want to encourage them, you know, just you're going to sit here. Mommy's going to sit here with you and we're going to have, you know, five minutes of quiet. So those are, so those are some of the things. And when earlier, when you were talking about, um, 
adoptees who wait until their adoptive parents have passed before they'll search for their birth parents. Um, even though their parents have said, we'll be alongside you, we'll, we'll walk with you. Um, there may have been, what I, what, I've, what I found in my own journey is there may have been um, hints, besides the words, we'll be, we'll be with you. But there may have been other cues that adoptees are sometimes very adept at in, intuiting and picking up cues that they're not totally okay with that search. And so that divided loyalty that the adoptee is fearful of having, um, they, they sense that somehow. Yes, that's, that's certainly true. And then just even thinking about, um, you know, when something traumatic happens, so I'm referring to, you know, again, separation uh, from, from one's biology, it, it really changes the, the way people view themselves in the world, right? So common themes and common beliefs adoptees have are, you know, it's not safe to trust. I'm, I'm not lovable. People leave. I'm not worthy. Um, I'll be whatever you need me to be. So these themes that happen, that that, and again, it's it's what has happened is really important. But it, but again, when trauma occurs, a person does generally develop certain beliefs about themselves in the world. So if any of those beliefs are reinforced, you know, by a parent's reaction or something they say, it certainly will. Um, prevent them from from searching and prevent them from feeling safe. And I think it's it's normal from the I mean it's understandable from the the construct that we've had about adoption in our culture that either or mindset that I that I talk about in the book. When we think that you can have one set of parents, and but you really have two, so we have to kind of do something to get rid of that other one because you can only have one mom, you can only love one mom, you can only claim one mom and dad. If we have that subtle thought um, in, in our collective consciousness, then even if the child isn't, or even if the adoptee isn't picking that up from their parents, they're picking that up from the culture of, I really can't look because the first question anybody says about if you're looking for your um, birth parents is what? What do your adoptive parents think right. about that? Right. What, what's the effect on your adoptive parents? Right. And weren't they good enough for you? Why do you need more? So that all of those are in line with that either or construct. And so I think what's needed both on the, the micro level of parents and the macro level of society is the shift to a both and. Yes. And I use that. I use that all the time. There's so many, you know, in the, in the concept of reunion and also just in the concept of ad- adoption in general, right? So adoptees are, you know, society, tells adoptees that they, you know, that they, they should be grateful, that they're lucky, that this, that adoption is such a wonderful thing. So it can be right. And, and I always say, you know, I can say as an adopted person that I, that I actually am grateful that I was adopted. I was, you know, I, I, I know my, my birth family. I know my adoptive family. Um, They're there. I do have gratitude and I've also struggled with issues that a lot of adoptees have sh- struggled with, right? Anxiety, depression. Um, but they're so, yeah. And I use, I use your um, both ands um, all of the time because the, you, there, there's so many that, that apply to adoption. And I, th- I see so many adoptive parents now out there trying to change the rest of the culture with this both and 
perspective um, and becoming kind of ambassadors for this new way of looking at adoption that, I mean, just in the course of our conversation, we've covered so many parts of the baby scoop era that have served to hurt adoptees and adoptive families and first parents. Right. And it, it, once you know all that, we, it makes no sense to continue on with those, that outlook. We need a different way, a different paradigm for this. Yes, definitely. Definitely. What kind of projects are you working on these days, Leslie? Um, I am working on a few different projects, but the one that I'm currently, that's currently just happened is I developed a course, a healing, a healing course for adults who were adopted. So it's a six week virtual course and we are in our fifth week. So that'll, that I'll, I'll launch that again in January. Um, but that's just been a really, really great, uh, great experience. Um, and just to witness, I was telling you before the call, just um, to, to witness uh, the community aspect. I think that it's, you know, adoptive parents, first parents, adoptees, when you can find another person or a group of people um, that have a similar experience and, and develop that uh, community, it can just be so healing. Yeah. And one of the good things that's come out of this COVID era is this new way and willingness to connect with people despite geography. Right. Yeah. I have a teen group, a a teen, a group for teens who were adopted and we met, used to meet in person. And we, when COVID start, when the the lockdown or shutdown, however you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, uh, began, we opened that group up to everyone. So we now meet weekly and we have kids from all over the world, actually. Um, and it's, it's remarkable again, that sense of community and, 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 you know, you get me and, um, it's wonderful. I think of how my life would have been, or, you know, how my teen years would have been different had I had a, a, a group of other, um, of other teens who were adopted to, you know, sit and talk about music with, I mean, we're not always talking about adoption. We're just, we're just sitting in there talking, um, just building connections. Yes. Yeah. So I'm I'm reflecting on some of the things we've talked about today, and I'm I'm thinking that there are some really tough things for adoptive parents to hear because nobody, no parents go into adoption um, wanting to have contributed to tr- the trauma and separation of a child. And I'm thinking that there may be some people who would rather stay in the dark about this and have the covers over their head, then know this really tough stuff about how our children um, start out with this kind of tough thing. What would you say as a, as a therapist and as an adoptee to adoptive parents, or how do, how do we incorporate that tough information into our, into our parenting, into our existence with our child, knowing that these hard truths exist? That's a great question. And, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, sometimes it, it feels like it might be easier to, to deny or wait, you know, we'll wait to talk about that. And what I encourage parents to, to do is with the, with the notion that I believe, um, parents are their child's best advocate, right? So get comfortable with, with all parts of the story and get part, get comfortable with, um, you know, this, your family started with this, this, this incident that was 
separation and and there is going to be grief and loss that that, that are inherent in the, in that um and when i say get comfortable i don't mean get comfortable like it, that it's okay but get comfortable get comfortable talking about it um and if you're not find a group or find a therapist that can help you with the language and because the earlier parents start talking about it the better um because you're letting your child know then that that you are a safe place that you can handle whatever they bring to you um and you're helping them you know that helping them begin to form an identity their identity and I think that talking is so important on two different levels. One, because they're hearing it from you. And two, because you're saying it. And the more right. we say it, kind of like a stone getting polished, it gets smoother and smoother the more we are working it, kind of. Right, right. It's a great analogy. Yeah, so you're basically saying that adoptive parents have to do the work that we're asking adoptees to do in their life too, which is to incorporate the happy parts and the sad parts. Yes, and not deny either, and not um, outsize or minimize either, but right. really put them into proportion with each other and become whole in that way. Both exactly. Something. Exactly. Ah, back to the both and. <laughs> both the happy and the sad. Right. So um, this is a question that I asked of all of our guests. Can you boil things down to your best piece of advice for adoptive parents about the long view of adoptive parenting? Well, I think you just said it best. Um, you know, I think I think that the the adoptive family um, works best when adoptive parents have done their done their work and continue to do their work. Um, I think that's that's my number one uh, recommendation for adoptive parents. Uh, one of my earlier guests said something like, um, "Get comfortable with the discomfort." Yeah. Perfect. Don't run from it. Don't squash it down. Yeah. Acknowledge that it exists and, and let it, let it deal with it. Right. Deal right. with your stuff, which is what another guest has said. <laughs> right. Right. So there's a common theme running. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your being here with us today, Leslie, and sharing all of your insights and wisdoms, um, wisdom about uh, adoptee related issues, adoptive parenting and um, all of that. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Lori. It's great to talk to you. With each episode of Adoption the Long View, we bring you guests that expand your knowledge of adoptive parenting. Please subscribe, give this episode a rating, and share with others who are on the journey of adoptive parenting. Thanks to each of you listeners for tuning in and investing in your adoptions, Long View. May you meet everything on the road ahead with confidence, capability, and compassion. Special thanks to Clemencia de Leon for her behind-the-scenes assistance and thoughtfulness throughout this season, and to Adopting.com for producing and sponsoring this podcast.